This is Women Authors of Achievement podcast, episode three, with guest Kelly Franklin. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Daria Savorova, and welcome to the show. Before calling Berlin her home, Kelly mingled with the creative scene, artists, musicians, DJs, back in New York and London. She's a frontrunner of social media marketing, started all the way back in 2010, helping an independent record label build their brand and bootstrapped her own booking agency. In Berlin, she was building up social media strategy and brand for banking tech Unicorn N26, one of the Germany's largest startups. Today, she's working at Universal Music, and this time, the world's biggest music company, where she leads the international marketing department. In this episode, you will get to know the do's and don'ts of personal branding, where the music industry is heading, and why the fintechs still have her heart. So with that, it's time for you to get to know Kelly Franklin. Kelly, welcome to the studio. Thank you for having me. Yes, thank you so much for coming and finding time. That's great. Um, you mentioned that for the fa past 15 years, you worked tirelessly to manifest the life you promised your 20-year-old self. 12-year-old self. Yes. What was it that you promised back then? That I wanted to move to Europe and be fabulous. That's a great start. Yeah. Where did that idea come from? I took a German class when I was 12. And for me, Europe and Germany was this faraway place that was very old and had castles and different kinds <laughs> of food and weird music. And I just kept doing that. I kept taking German classes, basically. So you speak fluently? No, God, no, 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 not at all. When I arrived in Germany, I realized I didn't speak German at all. Okay. Um, but that's great. I mean, now you're here in Berlin. Yep. You worked in the music industry back in New York. Uh, you traveled around the world. You worked in other industries. You came to Berlin, joined the Challenger Bank here, and now you're back again with the music industry. So how does it feel for you? Do you feel like you're back on your home turf with Universal Music? Yes and no, because when I started in the music industry, actually when I was thinking about writing my bio for this podcast and I was like having to think about my life, I started LinkedIn stalking myself. And then, of course, I started Facebook stalking myself. And Facebook is a treasure trove of information. And actually, I started in the music industry in 2007 when I was still in university. And I worked at the only nightclub in my tiny college town. And I was hired to be the promotions director. And what I did was there was one guy that was booking the bands and the DJs, and my job was to promote it. I learned Photoshop, Dreamweaver, and um, I don't remember if it was After Effects, whatever you make movies in an Adobe. But I was making the in-house movies. I was going around to the newspaper, setting up all of the ads. I had a promo team. And that was kind of my first foray into the music industry. And then also that was when party photography kind of took off and became a thing. When photographers would show up to parties and be like, oh, this is so cool. These people are having so much fun. And I was like, okay, yeah, we can do that. And so um, I found this amazing kid called Natapong Tasawong. He was from Thailand, and he had a camera. And I was like, come on. We called him Nut. I was like, come on, Nut. And so we would show up to sororities and fraternities and also this nightclub, and we would take photos. And then that was the ethos. Facebook was created in 2005. And so that's when I was in university. It was 2005 to 2009. And so we were the early adopters, as you would say. And we were their big, great experiment. But so what we did is we took these party photos and we put them online and then we tagged people. And that's kind of how we did promotion at that point. 
Oh wow, that's that feels something so so casual, so usual these days. But at that time, that was absolutely like the invention yeah, <laughs> of like tagging people in the music industry. Yeah. And now, uh, what are the some of the things that you're working at uh, with Universal Music? I mean, so I run the international marketing team, and the way for me to explain that to people that don't work in music to break it down to its core is my role and my team's role is we market all of the German products throughout the world. And actually what I like about Universal, which is what I haven't done before, is it's mainly B2B marketing with a slight focus on B2C. Yes, I've worked in different markets around the world, but for me, this is even more markets. I have one artist called Two Colors, and they're blowing up in China. They were on the EDM dance charts. They were number number one six weeks in a row. Like never in my life did I think that I would have an artist that's successful in China. That's pretty exciting. So it's very international, and sometimes you don't know where it's going to succeed, where this artist will really take off. Definitely. So this is a lot of trying, a trial and error. Yes and no. One of the many things that I learned at N26 was making database decisions. And of course, music is subjective and music is art. So you can't really say because this worked in this country, it's going to work in this country, or because this worked 20 years ago, it's going to work today. But what we do is we do make data-informed decisions, not database decisions. And what really excites you this year in the music industry, like something that you're really anticipating and very much looking forward to? I think actually what's happening, which is what's never happened before, is we can't depend on live. <laughs> I mean, I don't even want to give a percentage, but I would say most artists depend on live. That's how you get your start, and that's the other thing that's changed. Like when I was working, most most of my job was live, and the recorded music was a bonus, and the merch and physical product was a bonus, but it was about live. It was about experiencing things. And music is such an experiential thing. Like, you need to be there. You need to look in people's eyes. You need to dance. You need to feel the bass. You want to sing along. There's the lights. There's the people. There's the beer. Like, it's this whole thing. And we can't do that anymore. Like, even think about the most ancient people ever when they were doing drum circles. It was there. It was an IRL experience. And Corona has so kindly taken away our IRL experience. And what we're now challenged with and what the task is, is how do we still build artists without that IRL experience? What There's lots of singer-songwriter indie genre, especially people need to go to shows. You, you need to play shows. You need to play shows. So the challenge for us is how do we still build artists without having that live component? And then also working at a major label versus what I did before, what I'm doing What I love about my job is it's, it's the amalgamation of every single thing that I've ever done. I've had almost, almost every job in the music industry but make the music. And so I'm doing that now all together but on a much larger scale. And it's how can we as a record label offer services and even more services to our artists now that they don't have the live there. And going back a little bit, I know you bootstrapped your own booking agency. Mm -hmm. uh, could you tell more about that? And also you worked for an independent record label. Mm -hmm. How was it back then? What brought you there? So I studied business in school. And one summer, actually, no, this wasn't even summer. This was in school year. We used to do, go to something called Winter Music Conference. I think it's called Miami Music Week, but it's a music conference. And we went down to Miami and I went with my friends. And they were all they were all guys and they were all DJs. And they were all basically having this like man crush on this guy and they're like go talk to him go talk to him and I just was like you guys like I'll go be the brave one and I was like hey are you drop the lime and this tall 
vampire-looking man covered in tattoos with these brilliant green eyes and this rockabilly hair. He's like, yeah, I'm dropped the line. Make a long story short, um, his name is Luca. He lives in Berlin now. He's still an artist. Um, but so he ran this record label that was called Trouble and Bass. And what attracted me to Trouble and Bass was they had this iconic logo where it was a T and a B, but the way that Luca had drawn it, it was together. And I was like, wow, this is a crazy brand. Like, I want to be a part of this. And so I got an internship there one summer because every summer I went to New York. Or one summer I went to L.A. and then every summer in college I went to New York City. Make a long story short, I got an internship and turned into a full-time job, and I was working with them, helping them with marketing. But the thing is, is they were a bunch of art kids, and I had went to business school. So I knew about P&L statements. I knew about bottom lines. And they all just were like, what? <laughs> um, so I actually had a lot of knowledge to bring to them, even as a 22-year-old kid. And so also the other thing is, is I graduated college in 2009. The economic crisis happened in 2008, and a lot of us just couldn't find jobs. So they were a small record label. They obviously couldn't pay me that much money, and they were like, well, we really love you, and we want you to stay. And so together we made up my own job, which was running the booking agency. So one thing that we did do was so we had guys that were on the label. And, again, another service that we could offer to them as a label was to get them shows because that the shows are promotion, but it's also income. That was all part of Trouble and Bass, yes. your work at Trouble and Bass. Correct. Mm -hmm. um, and so what I did was I bootstrapped that booking agency by myself for two years And I somehow amassed using Facebook and data mining, literal manual data mining, because I didn't know anything about coding or trying to, to, to mine data digitally or automatically, is I made a contact list of 10,000 people across the United States and across Europe of saying, hey, I want you to book my shows. And the thing is, is like, that's sales. It's pure, booking agent is pure sales. And it's also cold calls, cold emails, and you're selling something that people don't need. People don't actually need to go to a party. I mean, you can argue the point, but you don't actually need to go to the party the same way that you need to buy a bottle of water. And so that really gave me some chutzpah, and I was fearless and just calling and asking strangers for money over the phone. It was really crazy. It worked well. Like, what, what was your strategy there? I, my strategy there was I had thought about the marketing classes that I took in college and how do you compose an email? How do you make sure an email is not too long, not too short? But again, social media there was super integral because i that's when people were starting to make pages. And so you could see who fans were. That's also when people were making Facebook events. So I would see the bigger DJs in the same genre and I would find their info and I'm like, hey, well, you book Diplo, you might like this guy kind of thing. Yeah, that's, that's also something I was uh, curious to ask you because I saw that interview um, that you did uh, with Trouble Base in oh, yeah. 2011. Two of you are sitting, I think you and Patrick. Uh, Patrick. Yeah. And it feels that the idea of marketing through social media is just being born back then. Definitely. It was not existent before that. Yeah. Um, could you tell me more, like, how did it evolve from 2010 those in, in, in the last decade? And how did you see this, yeah, how, how it's growing this whole industry? Definitely. I mean, I can tell you that it's a lot more intricate. I'll start at where it is now and then take you back. So when I was working at N26, even in 2017, I was in charge of their social media. We had, at that point, 18 pages in five languages. And the challenge was keeping that all in one tone of voice. And I was thinking about that on the way here, is what it is now is social media is so much more intricate. And it's keeping that one 
tone of voice and keeping your brand the same across every customer touchpoint because your Twitter voice may not be the same as your customer service hotline voice as the voice on your website because those are different. The way that people use those channels are different. And also the other thing is you can be a lot more casual and a lot less professional, air quotes. And that's what has definitely changed for sure. And I think also just the I, my student assistant actually told me she was taking social media marketing classes in school. And I was, I had a laugh. I was like, what? Because everything that I learned about social media marketing, I'd learned it myself. It was on a go. It was yeah, I just learned by doing. There was no YouTube video of like how to do a Facebook ad. I just figured it out. And I think the other thing is, is that social media is multi-channel marketing and you can't, and there's a lot of customer overlap. So you can't say the same thing you would do on Twitter, on Facebook, because a customer might follow you on both places. And then... Which means it will cause confusion or... Uh, or no, they just... Um, it will become white noise. Because if you hear the same marketing message, eventually your brain will just black that out. And they might even unfollow you, so there you've lost a customer. And so I think also now, just in my career in general, I rely more on experience, where in 2010, it was more on intuition. I was just an excited college kid, and I was in New York City, and I was like, come on, let's do this. Yeah, and But what are some things that didn't work out, that you were trying and you were like, ah, damn it, this is a failure? <laughs> <laughs> so I once got kicked out of a place because I was handing out um, little promotional flyers, And I thought that that was like the most genius thing ever. And the business owner told me that I didn't have the right to be in there doing that because I didn't ask, nor did I pay a fee. Also, there, one of our old interns at Trouble and Bass, the guy, his name is Bauer. He's nominated for a Grammy now. And I'm so proud of Harry. But I remember Harry when he was our little intern. And so Harry and I, we used to throw shows and parties. Um, that was actually also the other cool thing about Trouble and Bass is so although they were a small label, they were bringing this UK funky and like house from the, from the, U, from the EU And bringing it to New York City. So I was also very early on working with people in London and France, and, and we had guys from Portugal. Anywho, so one day I told Harry, I was like, come on, Harry. I was really into guerrilla marketing. I would also say that's the other thing, too, about way social media has changed is it's a lot more guerrilla style, and it's not professional. Like, you're, of course, you can, like, pay influencers to do YouTube reviews or, you know, you have the really high-level influencers that are doing these photo shoots, but these still aren't professionals. It's not the way, and let's say 15 years ago, you pay an agency 100,000 euros to make you five photos that would be a billboard campaign. So back to the story with Harry and I. So I was like, come on, Harry. So what we were doing is there, there actually was a, um, an iPad campaign running around New York City. And so I went and I measured the size of the iPad, like in the, I think they were like on phone booths or in the street or something. And so we printed out pictures to make it look like whatever we were talking about. We made it look like the person on the iPad was looking at this trouble and base thing. And then we went around New York City and we put, we wheat pasted and taped up our promotional posters in these iPad things. Within, within this iPad kind within of frame. The, the iPad frame. That's pretty cool. And then we got a fine. Uh oh, no way. <laughs> and what what were the good ones? Because also I remember you spoke about merch. Like yeah. this is also was a pretty new thing yeah. of aligning the brand, connecting it to social media, and having the merch. Yeah. 
that's something that just started back then. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, D2C still exists, but that's what we were doing as well. So one thing we would do is we would kind of have a whole merch bundle around a release. So we'd have a local artist who would design it, design the cover. And then we actually did a few art shows where we um, had the artist print up some prints and sold it there. And then we would have something like maybe mouse pads or T-shirts or um, little bags to carry stuff in, but where it was like a whole thing. And the one like innovative thing that I'm still so proud of myself for doing, which it was going back to the tagging of photos. So I told you uh, Trouble and Bass had this like enigmatic, like very strong T&B. And so we had merch at our parties. And so I – this was also before Facebook had fan pages, right? Like I'll never forget in 26 we were trying to figure out how to – like I said, we had 18 social media pages, and I was trying to get them into one Facebook account and to merge all of this. It was nuts. <laughs> but so back in simpler days, before they had Facebook fan pages, I just you could only be a person, right? So I made Trouble and Base as a person. And what I did was I found anyone that was wearing our merch, and I went and I tagged them. And that's essentially backlinking, which is very uh, valued in SEO, but I was doing basically SEO marketing on Facebook. And so I was also doing community management. Anytime I saw somebody talking about Trouble and Bass or coming to our parties, I would tag them. I'd, I'd friend them on Facebook immediately on my phone. I'd comment on their photos. I would invite them to the Facebook events. I'd be like, oh, my God, Daria, it was so great to see you at our last party. Are you going to come? So I was doing a lot of that. Another thing that I was doing more of our, like, guerrilla marketing that actually worked out well more of, like, in a conference environment because – the one amazing thing about music conferences is you have all of these music people um, from the the smallest, most independent to the top, and we had temporary tattoos. So whenever we had a Trouble and Vase event, there was a girl um, named Sarah and I. Sarah had purple hair. I think Sarah's hair is blue now. Sarah was amazing. Sarah was our graphic designer. Like I was like the business lady, and she was our graphic designer. So we got temporary tattoos made. So anybody that came into our party – we would walk around with literally a sponge of water and the tattoo, and we just tattoo everybody. And so we basically had branded everybody for at least the next two or three days. So those tattoos were hard to I get I remember off. walking through the cities and seeing the marketing campaigns of N26, and I didn't have an account then. And then I thought, this looks really cool. Like, I need to get an account there. Yeah, I think, and I, that's how I became a customer. Yeah, definitely. I'm glad that it worked. <laughs> um, so that was also... W- were you part of that campaign? Definitely. So the No Bullshit campaign was the first ever brand campaign that N26 did. And what was really cool about that is because we were still a startup at that point, it was still only 300 of us. I say only, but there was only 300 of us. And I reported directly to the CMO. And he created a own little mini agency for me, the social media manager on paper, um, our copywriter, Tom, and our brand designer, Todd. All of us native English speakers, by the way. Todd speaks no German. I'm at about a B level, and Tom is at a C level, but it's still not native. So every day, Kelly put us in a room, and he was like, make us a brand campaign. So we went through it, and we came up with all these ideas. And then finally, we, somehow, we got to hashtag no bullshit. And we, that that campaign was so amazing. So we started in English. Then we, me and Tom hobble it together in German. We find an external German copywriter to fix our German. And we did a test case in Berlin, right? And I'll never forget, I was somewhere and I came back and my campaign was in the airport. I was like, this is incredible. This is amazing. This is something that like me and two of my friends at work made up. 
So we had our proof of concept in Berlin, and then we spread to other German cities, and it was working. And that campaign was an actual 360 campaign. We did paid social media, organic social media. Um, We had, like, SEO articles. We did TV ads, and we did it on every digital platform as well. And then the other thing is is we did um, out of home. I had never, ever done an out of home campaign in my life. And Kelly's like, just call 10 people. And I was like, okay. But then I thought about when I used to call and harass people uh, about my DJs. And I was like, okay, yeah, I got this. Um, And so then I figured out how to do out of home marketing as the social media manager. I mean, that's the cool thing at a startup is whatever your contract says isn't what you actually do. And then we then took that no bullshit campaign and we expanded it to five languages, Spanish, English, French, Italian, German. Yeah. So it was in five languages. We had to change the hashtag in Ireland because that's a native English speaking country and you can't curse. They don't think it's funny. And then also we had it at the, like I said, it was in the Berlin airport and you know, you can be a little bit cheeky in Berlin. We got a cease and desist in Italy because we were cursing in the airport, which I thought was really cool. And then the ultimate compliment was that Spark has a copied our campaign. And we all know that imitation is the most sincerest form of flattery. Absolutely. Many actually uh, fintechs started to follow that path. Yeah. Also the uh, the brand image, that uh, very simplistic, very clear message. It's not it's not overwhelmed with different parts of it. On the If you see the visual, it's very clear cut. And I saw many fintechs following that path. Yeah. Probably you saw that as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that was the other thing, too, is what we were trying to do. And I think what we successfully done when we were building the brand of N26 was banking is scary. Money is scary. People don't talk about it no matter what culture you're in or where you're from. It's not really something that people talk about, especially women. And we were just trying to make banking not only cool, but friendly and fun and approachable. And so our tone of voice, again, keeping... That tone of voice across all customer touch points was we wanted to stay professional because people are giving us their money. So you want them to trust you. But you also don't want to lo- use all of these convoluted financial terms that even us, if the employees, if we don't get it, then how can we sell it? And did it feel uh, for you as a 180-degree turn in your career because you were shifting from more of that creative scene to joining a challenger bank? No, not at all. I mean, I can tell you how I got the job at N26. So I came, I guess we aren't we aren't to that part of the story, but I'll give you a little preview. So when I came to Berlin in 2015, in August, I had a year of yes. And I did literally whatever I wanted. Um, there's a scene in the movie The Beach starring Leonardo DiCaprio, one of my favorite movies. And at the beginning, when he's doing the voiceover monologue, he says, never refuse an invitation. And I spent that entire year not refusing an invitation. And I, like I told my little 12-year-old stuff, like we finally made it. I just jet set it, easy jet set it all over Europe. I even made it to Asia. And I just, I was working freelance. So I was working, but I was having a lot, a lot of fun and just enjoying life. So after that year was over, I was like, okay, I'm ready to be a grown up, And I'm ready to get an RPJ, a real person job. So... I was like, I'm going to get a job at a bank. So I got a job at a bank, and I got there, and I was like, oh, okay, this is a startup. It's not a bank, but cool. Step in the right direction. And what was really cool was because I got there in the somewhat early days. I mean, they had already been around for two or three years at that point, but it was still very early days. We were allowed to do what we wanted within reason, 
And everyone really believed in you and trusted you and wanted you to run with it. And the really cool thing about working there at that time was our mission was to build a bank the world loves to use. And everyone knew that. But what N26 valued was cognitive diversity. So they took people from all different locations in the world, different educational backgrounds, and different work experiences. And they put us all in one building. And they're like, go build a bank. And so we were able to take that amazing cognitive diversity and really and fuel it into the brand and into the product. That's super exciting, and it worked uh, pretty smoothly. Yeah, it's worked still perfectly. working really well. It is, it is. At the moment, are you still close to the fintech industry? Is there anything that really sparks your interest or how you're contributing to the scene? Yeah, definitely. So I'm still, I'm currently a mentor at Techstars. I think I've been there for about two years now. And what's really nice for me in doing that is that it keeps me sharp. Because there, I'm at a corporation, a very mature business that has been around for a while now, and these people are still fresh. And some of their problems I think are so easy to answer, and they're just like, oh, my God. And I'm like, no, 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 it's okay. But then also the things that I learned from them, I'm really able to implement that back at Universal. It's, you know, for instance, for instance, I mean, I took this from – N26, but I also think about it when I'm working with my startups is like doing agile things, very basic things. Or I made like a Kanban board or a product release roadmap. What are some of your favorite startups that you've been advising? A company called Litian Energy that's based here in Berlin and it's Green Energy. They are actually my energy company, L-I-T-I-O-N. And then I worked for a little bit with a company called Linus Capital. And so that was a fintech finance sort of, where they did mezzanine financing for real estate developers. And then I'm still working with Strive, who I actually met through Techstars. They're based in Australia. They're opening up in the UK very soon. And that is family finance. So it's about educating people from zero to 18 about money, because a lot of personally, a lot of my friends come to me because I'm very good at adulting and being financially responsible. And I think that a lot of financial strain and worry could really be alleviated if we all were just educated a little bit more because I know not everyone's parents sits down with them and talks to them about, okay, you've got 100 bucks. How are you really going to spend this 100 bucks? And then the last one is Suede. They're based in L.A., and I met them in the last Tech of tech Stars class last year, and that's an AI data company that's using data and technology to really amplify the customer's experience in hospitality. Pretty cool. I mean, it's amazing that you find time to full-time work, then advise the startups, then do the mentoring. Any other ways that you like to contribute to the space with your knowledge? Definitely. So what I do, what Corona has also taken away from me uh, <laughs> is giving keynotes. And so I actually really miss doing that. So in the States, we have to write a lot of papers and we have to give presentations and we always have to argue our point. We have to do research and we have to do it from at least the age of 10 or something. And so for me, that was a really nice mental exercise because you can get really caught up in your job in the day-to-day -day and you may not actually be learning anything. You may, especially in my role as a leadership role, I'm always imparting knowledge upon people, but I can't say when the knowledge is trans or is flowing back in my direction because that's not what I'm there for. So working with the startups and giving keynotes is something where I can keep my muscles strong. My brain is a muscle and I need to work it out, right? And so for me, the 
the nerdy fun thing about it is it's a constraint. I have anywhere from 20 to 45 minutes. I have to research this point. I have to argue my point. And I also have to break down a very complex topic that I'm very passionate about that I know all of the correct buzzwords for that other people may not and make it simple for them. And can they learn something? Just looking back, you know, with all the traveling, relocating to new cities, trying out new roles, new industries, now when you look back, it all looks easy and flawless, something that was meant to be. But if you imagine yourself back then, was it challenging? Was it something that you felt, I should not push myself outside of the comfort zone? Or it always felt something like natural to you? I would say that being an immigrant is very hard. I've been an immigrant for five years. And when I was in the States, I always gravitated toward first-generation Americans whose parents didn't grow up in the States. And then even when I was in university, I lived in the international dorm because I wanted to be around people that didn't grow up like me and that they could impart some cool knowledge upon me. I mean, I say cool, but it's just so – it's just such like – the world is such a big place and we don't really have that – many years to see it all. And so I really have a different type of empathy for anybody that picks up and moves away from literally everything they know. And yes, I moved from one Western culture to another Western culture, but it's still not the same. There are small nuances. You know, everyone has a different concept of normal because what you grow up with is your normal and then you go somewhere else and they're like, that's not normal, that's weird. And you're like, no, you're weird. So I definitely have a different kind of empathy for immigrants and just even small struggles. And when I moved to New York City, I mean, I'm a city girl. Like I always, that's why I left the States. I was like, I lived in LA. I lived in New York. I'm not going to Chicago. I'm not going to Miami. Texas doesn't interest me. There's nowhere to go. And then I had a short stint in London. The reason why I even moved to London was because when I started that DJ booking agency, this is embarrassing to say now. But we booked dubstep DJs. Dubstep used to be cool. And dubstep came from London. It came from Croydon. And I was like, I need to know the essence and the ethos of this. And so I went and I actually met Skrillex there at a party. And then like Scream and Benga and all of these legendary dubstep DJs. Like I was there. I went to the parties. I went to like one of the first ever boiler rooms in London because I was like, I need to see this. And so no, that wasn't scary. I was like, I want to be good at this. So I need to know everything about it. And then even when I spent a year as an actor, the reason why I even did that was because I worked with creative people and I worked with artists mainly. As, and, a, as an actor that was uh, back in UK. No, that was in New York. New York. That was in New York. And I got into the acting union, which was really cool. And that meant that I got to take free classes, free acting classes. But for me, it was like to really, truly understand the people that I'm working with and the products that I'm selling. I need to become it. I need to get in their skin. And I don't want to sing and make music. Although people always ask me, do I sing? And I'm like, no, you don't want to hear it. I'm, I'm the business lady. I'm here to count the money. But that was, a, that was my exercise. I spent a year in learning empathy and really like, what is that like to not know where your next paycheck is coming? What is it like to really need to perform? Like that's something that's in people. And that part was pretty scary. I auditioned for a movie using my iPad and then like retrospectively looking back then, I'm like, I can't believe you walked into a movie audition, like reading from your iPad, like, are you crazy? <laughs> but I just kind of did it. And I think another thing is, is it's always for me, it's been strategy. I don't ever show up to something without being prepared. And I know for some people, they can just 
do stuff on the fly and good for them, but I practice and I make sure it's good and I make sure it's polished. And even when I did move to Berlin. Yeah, that's what that's what also something I was curious about. What brought you here? Because Berlin is the city of where it's the place of underground music. Uh, the music industry here is very vivid. It's growing. And that's my assumption is that's why you came here in the first place. No, I didn't come for the music at all. Not at all. I don't even go out to cl Well, when clubs were open, I didn't even go. So I came here in 2011 on like a little trip around Europe. And then in 20, I don't remember if it was 2013 or 2014, Tech Open Air. Uh, my friend and I, uh, my friend's an entertainment lawyer. And we were like, we want to go to a music conference in Europe. So we got on Google and we found Tech Open Air. And I was actually in Iceland for a birthday party. And then I came over to Tech Open Air. And then I stayed in Berlin for a week. And what I did was I, obviously I went to the conference, but then I stayed in every neighborhood for like one or two days, like overnight, because I wanted to see the different neighborhoods and like, could I actually see myself living here? I made sure I got a bike and I rode around. I used to ride my bike in New York City. So like riding my bike around Berlin is nothing at all. If you've never gone down Fifth Avenue at 5 p.m. in traffic on a bike, like please, Berlin is light work. <laughs> And so I did my little recon mission, and then I went back um, to Iceland to finish off this birthday party. It was amazing. And then I went back to New York City, and I spent—it was at least a year and a half or maybe two years. I had an Excel checklist backwards of every single thing I needed to do to move to Germany, from the whole visa application to the making sure I got doctor's records, what kind of insurances did I need, things to avoid. Like, I was very strategic about it, and I also was— being re financially responsible and saving up lots of money so that I could have my year of yes so that when I did move, it wasn't like, oh, my God, I need to find a job. And, like, I was like, no, because I know that once I get a job, you enjoy and experience the city in a completely different way when you're working than if you're living your best life. You're such a strategy woman, yeah. Ellie. That's amazing <laughs> that you were planning for from one to two years before you came here, and then you had one year where you knew you can let go. Would you say that Berlin is your final stop? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm, for me, and I don't want to say this is American, so just for Kelly, I live in Europe. I don't live in Germany. I don't live in Berlin. And so something that's amazing about not being at the place of where I'm from is like where I'm from, if you fly for five hours, it's still the same food. It's still the same language. It's still the same people. Yes, it's culturally slightly different, but it's the same. There's no challenge. But if I fly for seven hours, I'm in Dubai. In two hours, I'm in Paris. In four hours, I can go to Iceland. You know, for me, I'm in a literal, physical, very awesome geographic location. I can go to Sweden for the weekend. You can't do that in New York. I wanted to ask you a little bit into the direction of personal branding, because many people are interested in how they can develop themselves and what is personal branding today in 2021. Mm -hmm. And what is your opinion? What are some trends, shifts that you see are happening? I think something that people are forgetting is that personal brand is when you wake up in the morning. Back when we were allowed to go outside, we used to be able to dress to express ourselves. And that is your personal brand. And your personal brand doesn't just exist on the internet. How you conduct yourself in meetings at work, at parties when we were allowed to go to them. And I don't mean like dance parties. I mean like a cocktail party or a dinner party, something like that. That is your personal brand and that the internet is just a digital personification of that. And what are some of the mistakes that you see people do often uh, when it comes to personal branding online? I would say online for my generation, I am a millennial. No shade, no shame. 
on that is that we are trying to be too authentic. We're trying to keep it too real and that there is a time and a place and an avenue to express your feelings. And a lot of front-facing, speaking into the camera, crying into the camera isn't really appropriate. I don't think it is. People should get a diary, write it down, get a therapist, call your best friend. But the internet doesn't really need to know because I actually found my old Tumblr. And the name of my old Tumblr is The Internet Never Forgets. Everything is screenshotable. Google has indexed everything, even if you erase it. And you never know where life is going to take you, who you're going to be in 20 to 50 years. And we've all seen cancel culture and what cancel culture can do. And when someone digs up an old tweet of something you said, maybe it was in jest, it doesn't really matter. You could really shoot yourself in your own foot trying to be funny or trying to be too authentic. And how would that correlate to the professional um, personal branding? I would say that, you know, I think a lot of people forget to use LinkedIn, even if you already still have a job. LinkedIn's a great place. I'm on this podcast because of a LinkedIn message. And it wasn't about a job. It was about something interesting. And you can also use your Twitter and Instagram as a professional and personal space. I mean, I mainly use mine as a personal space. That was a professional space. And that's how I sold Kelly as a cool person was look how much fun I'm having on Instagram. Social media, the way that it was built and the way that it still works is it is an echo chamber. It's democratized. You pick who you follow. So you can follow a bunch of people that are saying the same thing as you versus the news or a newspaper. It's supposed to be a neutral space and to have both sides heard. Thanks a lot for your input on that. I would like to wrap up our wonderful conversation. You brought so many insights uh, from, you know, from, from the advisors on marketing, social media, your personal story. This is, was a really great conversation. And I'm curious, what are you, your plans for 21? What are you excited about? For 2021, I think it's mainly about surviving. I don't, I did do this. Uh, one of my good friends and I, we make OKRs for our personal lives. If you guys don't know what OKRs are, they're objectives and key results. It is something that's used by Google, something that's used by companies. And so we did it last year, and my OKR sheet was super chill. And we had our alignment call this year, and she had six categories. And I was like, oh, my God. This is serious. But, like, but okay, I did it. It was like personal, finance, travel, career, my one that I added was like house stuff because I'm in my house and I have to stop myself from keep buying stuff. But really, it's honestly just about surviving because I've tried to do some research about the Spanish flu. I've tried to do some research about the Black Plague. Honestly, I do my research on YouTube videos. They're very awesome and informative. But and I don't want to say that humanity's never experienced anything like this before because I haven't been alive that long. So I can't really be uh, an authority on humanity. However, for me in my lifetime, this is some radical, weird thing of where we're all locked in the house. And especially in Germany, we're only allowed to visit one other person. And it's a lot of parallel universes that are happening because I saw a video on Instagram. You know, New Zealand doesn't have corona. They all were in a nightclub partying like it was literally 1999, right? Where you have us in Germany, we're all locked in our houses literally alone 
And then you have people in the states who are like going to restaurants, but that's just in one state. In other states, they can't. And then also in China, um, I was actually speaking to one of my colleagues there. They're having tours with shows. So you have all of these parallel universes happening at the same time, and we're no longer on, everyone's not on the same time clock. And for me, it's just about surviving. It's about creating a new routine that works for me, about making sure that I exercise because my exercise used to be my 20-minute bike ride to work, and now I don't have that. Um, And then also something that I'm doing in my personal life and in my professional life is how do you keep human connection? Because my job is sales, and a lot of my job was in-person meetings. And now that's gone. And yes, we do have Zoom. But one thing that we are doing, at least at work, is we're making goodie bags and sending them to people just to have that kind of human connection. And then one thing that I've taken up in quarantine is painting. And so I've I've created a little brand about how I paint my people. And I'm sending those as presents. I don't want to ever sell my artwork because I think that's completely disrespectful to true artists who actually have studied this and this is their life's work. Me, it's more of just a fun present to give to people. The question I ask all my guests is uh, if you could think of a woman that you would define as an author of her own achievements. Okay, so I thought long and hard about this because <laughs> there were so many because you were like, oh, you can have more than one. And I was like, no, I don't want to go here in a laundry list of people. So who I chose was Serena Williams because Serena Williams, you know, most athletes are just athletes. They play their sport from anywhere from five to 10 years if they're lucky. And that's it. But Serena is a business in her own, and she has several verticals. She has sports, endorsements, D2C, fashion, and the most interesting one for me is investing. She ha- own, her and her sister own a minority, minority stake in an NFL football team, a woman, like owning a football team, which is crazy. And then she's also taken a few stabs at acting, which, is, of course, is near and dear to my heart. But I think that Serena is her authentic self in the best way possible. And if you watch the HBO documentary that she did, that's a really good example of authentically being yourself but still being professional. And the thing for me going back to the investing is that, you know, she's created wealth and she continues to build that wealth through other verticals, but then she also spreads that wealth around by investing in companies. And, you know, she's taken her natural ability, but she's accelerated it by lots of hard work and dedication and to create paths that weren't there before, especially for tennis, like it's not basketball, you know what I'm saying? It's not soccer slash football, like it's tennis. You know, she made tennis cool and that, you know, she's carved her own path, but that's also left a path for other women who are yet to be born or who may just be infants at this point to really normalize things. You know, usually celebrities, they play sports and they have endorsements, but like, She had Serena Ventures for a while now, you know, so I think that that's really amazing. And the other thing, the other reason why I said Serena is because she doesn't let people walk all over her. She stands up for herself, even when the most minute thing of when they were upset about her amazing outfits she was wearing, she was like, no, that's not cool. Like, I'm here to play the sport. Why are you even judging me based on what I look like? You need to be worried about how fast I'm hitting this ball. Thank you, Kelly, so much for coming again. It was great speaking to you. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Have a great day. You too. Thank you for joining us today. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
And please don't forget to leave us a review. We're always excited to read them. If you want to interact with us, the guests, or the podcast listeners, then head over to our Instagram page at waa.berlin. And while you're there, make sure to check our webshop. Thank you again for listening, and we're looking forward to being back soon. <laughs>